This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month, and while more and more Zoomers are beating the disease, there's been an unexplained increase in the number of young people who get it. And a critically acclaimed filmmaker who investigates the distant past is getting the prestigious Gordon Sinclair Award for Broadcast Journalism. We'll speak with Simcha Yakubovich in just a few moments. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. His photo of Israeli paratroopers at the Western Wall holy site became an iconic image of the 1967 Six-Day War in the Middle East. Veteran Israeli photographer David Rubinger has died at the age of 92. The photojournalist's portraits span the history of Israel from the front lines of Israel's major wars to intimate photos of Israeli prime ministers and Jewish immigrants. Rubinger discovered photography while serving in the British Army's Jewish Brigade in World War II. He was awarded Israel's highest honor, the Israel Prize, in 1997. The star model at this season's London Fashion Week was not the usual fresh-faced teenager, but Jeanne de Villeneuve, a 72-year-old veteran model from Ohio. And she wasn't the only septuagerian on the catwalk at Simone Rocha. 73-year-old Benedetta Barzini also strutted her stuff. By way of explanation after the show, the designer said, This is my customer. Zoomers say, It's about time. Former Soviet gymnast Olga Korbut, who won four Olympic gold medals, has sold them along with personal mementos at auction. The 61-year-old, who now lives in California, will receive more than $180,000 for the medals she won in the 1972 Munich Games and the 1976 Montreal Games, along with dozens of other items, including her competition costumes and a signed sporting magazine. It had been reported that Corbett was forced to sell the items due to financial hardship, but she has denied those claims. What's your strangest bucket list item? For 99-year-old Annie in the Netherlands, it was being arrested and placed in a cell. Annie, whose last name was not published, grinned with delight as a police officer placed cuffs on her and put her into a cell for just a few minutes. Annie had never committed a crime in her life, according to her niece, which is why it was on her bucket list. A picture of her was posted on social media. It depicts Annie with a huge smile as she's put behind bars. The judge who presided over TV's The People's Court has died at the age of 97. Retired Judge Joseph Wapner passed away this week. He decided real small claims cases on the show between 1981 and 1993. Wapner's no-nonsense approach helped 
put the People's Court in the top five of syndication at its peak. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a shocking wake-up call just in time for Colon Cancer Awareness Month. The disease is declining in people over 50, those most likely to get it. But there's been an alarming and unexplained increase in the number of young people contracting colon cancer. The rate of incidence in people under 30 rose more than 6.5% a year between 1997 and 2010. I reached Dr. Shadi Ashmala, a colorectal surgeon at Sunnybrook Health Sciences. This study that recently came out was an American study, and it really uh, confirmed what we've seen in Canada. The numbers I saw in the study said that the rate among young people in the United States was increasing by 1% a year, but here it was 6% a year. Yeah, so there's definite increase, and which in and of itself is quite surprising in that, you know, across the board for colorectal cancer, we are winning. Uh, rates of colorectal cancer overall uh, are decreasing and screening is successful. So just looking at the overall number of colorectal cancer in society, we're doing quite well. It's only when they break down the numbers into these decades and looking at specific ages that we realize that in the younger populations, uh, we're losing. Um, The 6% increase was in 15 to 29-year-olds in Canada. In that small population of people, there's a a 6% increase year over year in colorectal cancer rates, which is obviously very striking. And what they're saying is that your risk of colorectal cancer in your lifetime, if you're born in 1990, has regressed back to one's risk if they were born in 1890. That in and itself is quite a profound finding. The other number that they used was to say that patients born in 1990 have double the lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer than if they were born in 1950 and quadruple the likelihood of developing rectal cancer uh, than patients born in 1950. And I thought those were sort of the most profound findings in their study, and I really like the way that they made that so crystal clear as to how severe this increase is. Why is this happening? Really, no one knows uh, the exact answer. Right now, there's a lot of associations related to um, risk factors of colorectal cancer. We know that uh, lifestyle choices increase rates of obesity, decrease exercise, um, smoking, alcohol consumption, decrease fiber in one's diet. All of those things can increase your risk of colorectal cancer, and they are all associated with increased risk of colorectal cancer. Whether those things are increasing in our society or increasing in our younger populations, it's speculative. Well, I think we know that people are heavier, more sedentary, and they junk food. Correct. (laughs) Correct, yeah. So we think it's because of lifestyle choices. What can be done about this? We see significant number of patients, and in my practice, I see many, many patients who have absolutely no risk factors for colorectal cancer, and they're in their 30s or their 40s, and all of a sudden, they present with this disease. So I think decreasing our risk factors is step one, but on the other side of it is identifying these disease patterns early by knowing what to look out for and when to present to a physician. I think that's absolutely key, especially in a disease like colorectal cancer, where early detection really changes how people do and their overall prognosis. 
Now, you said you're winning in older populations. Is that because of screening? Absolutely. Absolutely. So colorectal cancer is a preventable disease. And in populations, when we decide how or who we're going to screen, what you're looking for is a disease that if caught early, the outcome changes, and a disease that does not present with symptoms in the early stages. And that's why colorectal cancer lends itself very well to screening programs. And in those populations, we're finding colorectal cancers while they're still just polyps. They can be removed with the camera at the time of colonoscopy and the risk of cancer from that polyp is gone. In the younger populations, we're not screening those patients. And so they really aren't presenting until much later when the disease itself becomes more symptomatic and that correlates to a much later stage of, of the disease. Do these numbers about the increase in young people mean that we should think about screening people at a younger age? Absolutely, we should think about it. So, you know, I was asked, should we do it? And I think that takes a lot more investigating and a lot more research on a population level. What are the things that people should look out for? Symptoms like a change in one's bowel habits. So if your stool is thinner uh, consistently than, than it had been previously, um, if there's blood in your stool, new onset of abdominal pain, new onset diarrhea or constipation that can't be explained, um, a mass in the abdomen or even a mass in the rectum, uh, a feeling of incomplete evacuation after you go to the bathroom can be a bad sign. So these are things that when young people experience, Generally speaking, as young people, they probably won't say much about it until it gets quite advanced. And I think that's where there's a lot of room for improvement, that when, when this happens, we need to bring it to, the, uh, to medical attention. And as healthcare practitioners, we need to act on it and not just assume that these are inconsequential symptoms because the patient's young. And what would you like to leave us with? I mean, I think the most important thing to understand is this is a deadly disease. This is a disease that kills young people and kills old, that is indiscriminate in the lives and the families that it tears apart, and that we know, forget the rates and the rises and increases and everything else, we know that if we are vigilant, we will catch this disease early and manage it. But I think people have to not be shy about talking about these things. I think people need to know their family history, know their own personal risk, understand how they can decrease their risk, and not uh, in any way be shy about bringing uh, any symptoms to their healthcare practitioner to manage. Okay, Dr. Shadia Shmala, thanks so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Shadia Shmala from Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When we return, I chat with an award-winning filmmaker who is about to add to his mantle. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. You probably know his work, if not his name. These are the voyages of the naked archaeologist and his five-year mission to seek out theories that have been rejected by normal academia. That's a clip from the award-winning series The Naked Archaeologist, produced and directed by Simcha Yakubovich. He's behind many investigative historical pieces, including the controversial Lost Tomb of Jesus. Can this stone coffin be linked to Jesus of Nazareth? To answer that question, we have to examine all the archaeological evidence uncovered in this family tomb. Does it fit with Christian tradition? 
does it challenge certain articles of faith? Much of Simcha's work has aired on our sister station, Vision TV, and I chatted with him after he learned he's getting the Gordon Sinclair Award for Broadcast Journalism. Simcha Yakubovich, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Congratulations. It is, it is moving. I actually have to say that when they phoned me and they called me to say that I got the Gordon Sinclair Award, I was taken aback and moved in not a, an unexpected way, but, you know, I've won some awards over the years, but this had an impact because it's, it's kind of uh, for a body of work, and it's, I can't believe that the people who won it in the past are all icons and heroes of mine, so to be in that company is just amazing. Viewers of Vision TV will be familiar with your work, uh, with the naked archaeologist, and with finding the lost tomb of Jesus. Is there a thread running through your work? What I've done is taken the tools of investigative journalism and used them in history, archaeology, and biblical archaeology. And the place that I did that is really, to a large part, vision. The naked archaeologist, people think it was lighthearted, but it always delivered, and it delivered with that kind of investigative edge. Your piece on the lost tomb of Jesus was extremely controversial, upset a lot of people. I think when we broadcast it, it was new, so it was much more people were more sensitive. But now, you know, other people have followed in the, on those footsteps you see on CNN, and the, the Finding Jesus, and you know, the, in the internet, uh, Netflix, Amazon, all these new voices. And I think today it would be less controversial. But just a couple of years ago, history is moving very quickly. It did create a big ripple effect, but it also made international headlines, literally international headlines. Remind us uh, what you found in that documentary and what your conclusions were. In the lost tomb of Jesus, uh, we we identified a tomb in Jerusalem which has six inscribed ossuaries. Ossuaries are like limestone coffins from the time of Jesus. And one of these ossuaries on it has written in ancient Aramaic, Jesus, son of Joseph. And there are two Marys in that tomb. And there's a Yosef, and, and that's a name known to readers of the Gospels as Joses, one of the brothers of Jesus. So this tomb has a cluster of names that's unique and that can be identified with Jesus and his family. So what we did was we investigated the archaeology, we refound the tomb that had been kind of lost and ignored. We did DNA, we did carbon fourteen, we we just really did the science and then we went to an expert in the University of Toronto in probability and we asked what are the odds that this Jesus son of Joseph is the Jesus son of Joseph? And he came back with like fifteen 1,500 to 1 that we're talking about the same person. So that made a lot of noise, obviously. And you said he was married to Mary. Well, there were two Marys in the tomb. One of them, Maria, which is the name by which Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary, is known. And the other one was in Greek, the only Greek inscription in that tomb, Maria Mene, written in a very specific way of Mary, and that specific spelling appears in all of Greek literature associated with Mary Magdalene and no one else. So what we said 
you know, if a woman is buried next to a man in a family tomb, she's either related by blood or marriage. When we did the DNA, it wasn't by blood. So all that's left is marriage. Would you consider that your most important piece of work? I don't know that the Jesus tomb is... I've been blessed with many highlights. And, uh, you know, films are like, you know, which kid do you like most, you know, love most, you know? So I have to say each one I put my heart and soul in into, and I'm glad that now with this Gordon Sinclair Award that my community of peers is giving me a high five. It feels really good. Okay. On that note, we'll wrap it up. Thanks, Simcha, and congratulations. Thank Thank you so much, Libby. The award will be handed out on March 7th. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When we come back, the King of Calypso celebrates his 90th birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. An exhibition at London's Kew Gardens Art Gallery features Victorian botanist Marianne North, one of the most prolific artists of the 18th century, who devoted her life to painting plants as she traveled around the world. Gallery leader Maria Devaney says the entire collection of more than 800 paintings is on display. For someone to to walk into this gallery and to be surrounded by all this color and vibrant images and life and flora and fauna from around the world must have been an absolutely amazing experience. The paintings show more than 900 species of plants. In Denver, the city's art museum is presenting an exhibition of installations by emerging and mid-career Latino artists that express their experiences of contemporary life in the American West. In Chicago, the off-Broadway spoof of Hamilton is now on stage. It's called Spamilton. Delicious Mr. Spamilton. I am delicious Mr. Spamilton. And there's a million calories for your good. Spamilton is on a multi-week run at the Royal George Theatre. And for travelers to the Middle East, Qatar Museums, in collaboration with the Musée National Picasso and the Giacometti Foundation, present their first exhibition dedicated to the work of two of the most important artists of the 20th century, on display until May 21st. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, the King of Calypso, music icon and activist Harry Belafonte, celebrated his 90th birthday. While he is probably most famous for his career as a musician, Harry Belafonte is also well known for his active support of many humanitarian causes. He was a close confidant of Martin Luther King Jr. and provided lots of financial support for the civil rights movement. He's also a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF, And he's well known for his support of awareness for HIV-AIDS in Africa. And he was an early advocate for prostate cancer screening after he beat the disease in 1996. Most recently, Belafonte was named Honorary Co-Chair of the Women's March in Washington that took place in January of this year. Today we'll celebrate Harry Belafonte and his 90th birthday with the biggest hit from his musical career. The Banana Boat Song. 
That was Harry Belafonte with the Banana Boat Song. The musician and humanitarian activist celebrated his 90th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Bob Comsick will be here for the next few weeks to keep you up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.